Welcome to Pushback. I'm Aaron Maté. My guest is Stephen F. Cohen, Professor Emeritus of Russian Studies at Princeton and NYU, author of many books, including his latest, War with Russia, From Putin and Ukraine to Trump and Russiagate. Welcome, Professor Cohen. A lot to discuss on the Russia front. President Trump recently faced a you know, storm of outrage back home when he called for readmitting Russia to the G8, uh, from which it was expelled in 2014 after the annexation of Crimea. But now Trump has found an unlikely ally on this front in the French president, Emmanuel Macron. I want to play for you comments he recently made about easing tensions with Russia. I think we must build a new model for security and trust in Europe. Because the European continent will never be stable and safe if we don't pacify and clarify our relationship with Russia. It's not in the interest of some of our allies. Let's be clear about this. Some will always push to impose more sanctions. That's in their interest, even if they're our friends. But it's not in ours. So that is French President Emmanuel Macron. Professor Cohen, your comments on the significance of his remarks. Well, Aaron, first of all, I am glad to be with you. People always say that when they go on a, a broadcast or any kind of show. But I am glad to be with you, partly because the kind of questions you raise and the subjects we discuss just are not discussed or raised in the American mainstream media. And they're vitally important. Uh, Macron and what he's doing is a case in point. Now, first of all, for a person of my age or for a person who knows history, it's as though Macron is trying to play the role that Charles de Gaulle played in France decades ago. That is, position France as a great diplomatic power, because France is not going to be mistaken ever again as a military power, as a great diplomatic power between East and West. Uh, de Gaulle did that as best he could. That was his ideology. Um, Macron is now saying that France will be the intermediary of the West with Russia. You'd agree with that, right? That's what it sounds like, yeah. All right. So look at the European or look at the political landscape. Uh, first of all, this is Macron's personal ambition. He's tried, even though he lacks both the physical and the historical stature of de Gaulle, who was the leader of the French resistance in World War II, he's tried to play the role that de Gaulle played uh, between East and West. And you see this in his, you recall there was a time when he hosted first Putin and then Trump in Paris, or vice versa. Uh, it becomes really important now because of the tensions between the United States and Russia. But Macron is also speaking to other Europeans. Stop and think what the situation is. In terms of being an active diplomatic power, Germany has no, go no government now. Uh, Merkel is on her way out, and it's far from clear what, not who, will succeed her. But there'll be no authoritative figure in Germany. Uh, in the United Kingdom, which is the Russophobic uh, center of NATO countries, you have this stuff with Boris Johnson who, by the way, I'm told he speaks Russian, uh, but he is in no position to make any diplomatic overtures to Russia. And then we have the situation with Trump, who every time he tries uh, is uh, thwarted in Washington. So Macron is trying to emerge as a kind of historic figure and put France squarely in the center of diplomacy between East and West. 
it's a good thing. Somebody needs to do it. And Putin is receptive. He's giving Macron the kind of support he wants. But by the same token, uh, Macron has to fight a fight not only at home in France, but in Europe. And we'll see whether Washington backs him or not. Since you uh, raise uh, Trump's difficulties in making peace with Russia, something he campaigned on and faced, has faced a big backlash for, let me uh, read to you something, a comment from Nicholas Kristof, the liberal columnist for the New York Times, talking about uh, the ouster of National Security Advisor John Bolton. So Kristof wrote on Twitter, he said, the removal of Bolton will make it easier to meet with Iranians and negotiate with North Korea. It will also make it easier for Trump to make nice to Putin. The implication there being that making nice with Putin is a nefarious act that should be treated with suspicion. I'm wondering, Professor Cohen, your response to what Nicholas Kristof said. Well, it's not only Kristof, it's the entire New York Times, which has become even more so than the Washington Post in its own way, the citadel of a media uh, new Cold Warism. Uh, and Christoph has been in the forefront. Um, Christoph once said, I might have quoted this to you in one of our previous broadcasts, I think it was in 2004, that he was gravely disappointed with Putin, uh, for whom, about whom he had had great hopes in the beginning. You remember there was this honeymoon when Putin came to power in 2000, when he came to the United States, and he had a barbecue with the second President Bush out at the ranch, and there was a lot of talk about a American-Russian strategic alliance, a lot of talk. Christophe uh, then wrote that he was gravely disappointed in Putin because Putin did not turn out to be, and I think I quote him exactly, a sober Yeltsin. So what does that mean? It means that Christophe, the New York Times, represents the majority view in the American political elite that a Russian leader should be the way Boris Yeltsin was in the 1990s. Now, leave aside the fact that Yeltsin had failing health, he had open heart surgery, leave aside the fact that he was pretty close to being an alcoholic, just focus on the, pa on the fact that he said yes to almost everything the Clinton administration demanded of him. Uh, leave aside the fact that when he left office, his positive ratings in Russia were like 4%. He was in total disgrace, forced from office by not only the elite, but public opinion. And yet this is the Russian leader that continues to be the model, not only for Kristoff and the New York Times, but I think for the Washington elite. And that one reason they hate Putin so much uh, is that he is the anti-Yeltsin in many ways. And just to remind people, Professor Cohen, what were the policies that the U.S. loved about Yeltsin so much, and what was their what was the impact of those policies on average Russians? Well, Yeltsin was almost entirely dependent on the West, on Western financial institutions, uh, uh, for money in Russia, loans. By the way, they were not interest-free loans. They had they, 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 that interest had to be paid, and it was onerous. And eventually, it was paid off under Putin. But essentially, Yeltsin was financially dependent on the West. Russia was bankrupt. 
uh, its financial institutions and economy in gradual decline and then collapse. So he was heavily dependent on Western funding, which meant, of course, that he had to be compliant politically. Occasionally, he pushed back. But if people want to know, <clears throat> and during this time, by the way, Clinton, President Clinton, presented the relationship with, with Yeltsin as one of great friendship and strategic alliance. But that was ceremonial. Uh, behind the scenes, they were treating and thinking about Yeltsin, I mean, uh, Clinton, President Clinton, and his Russia hand, Strobe Talbot, who was in charge of Russia during the Clinton administration. They were thinking and talking about Yeltsin in a different way. Uh, if you look at Strobe Talbot's memoirs, I think it's called The Russia Hand, there's an episode where they're discussing doing something not pleasant to Yeltsin again, and Clinton turns to Talbot and says, well, I guess we'll have to shove some more shit up old Boris's face. Uh, so they knew exactly what they were doing. What they were doing in treating Russia this way was gutting the pro-American, pro-Western lobby um, in Russia. And not only the lobby, but attitudes, pro-American attitudes, American among young Russians. So if you go to Russia today and you talk to somebody now who's kind of a budding or in middle age, but who was young in the 1990s, that's what they remember about the United States, how badly the United States treated Russia under Yeltsin. But it, Yeltsin wasn't the point. It was their Russia. So Clinton's policy uh, was not only in its outcome a disaster. I mean, to a certain extent, it produced Putin or Putinism. But it was just unwise. And they were warned. A lot of people told the Clinton administration, the president himself, Strobe Talbot, Isaiah Berlin, by the way, the famous intellectual in England who had been uh, Talbot's tutor when Talbot had studied in England, said to him, Strobe, what the hell are you doing with your Russia policy? You're driving Russia away. But they wouldn't listen. And by the way, there is something about uh, these democratic liberal presidents uh, and Russia where they don't listen. They have an inner coterie of advisors like Samantha Powers, uh, who know absolutely nothing about Russia, though Strobe did. But they, they unlike uh, previous presidents, they don't seek opinion outside their inner group. Uh, I don't know why this is, because, of course, Russia is in many ways still the great prize, high priority for any American president. Well, that's a great setup to our next clip, because Samantha Power, uh, the former U uh, U.S. ambassador to the U.N. under President Obama, also a top advisor to Obama. Uh, she appeared this week on the Rachel Maddow show, and I wanted to play for you something she said about Putin, saying that Putin essentially has decided to turn against the Western-led international order. I think there was a moment, I'm not sure exactly, I don't know how I would pinpoint it, but where Putin just decided that the international order that was coming to be with this aging population and its sort of stagnant economy, that this was not an order that benefited him politically. And like our current president, Putin cares about Putin. Mm -hmm. Putin doesn't care about the Russian people. And so for Putin, the, the ticket to self-sustainment was demagoguery, nationalism, you know, bringing Russia from its knees. And I think there is a lesson for us, which we, we did not see sufficiently, we, the Obama administration, but I think across the board, 
the sort of dignity deficit for Russia in the wake of the Cold mm. War, as we were sort of thumping our chests about the victory in the Cold War, you know, there, there, this was a proud nation with an amazing history, with amazing traditions, and just feeling looked past as we're moving on and thinking about our relationship with China or how the European Union is going to be the new partner. So, you know, um, I think all of us have to look back at the missed moments. Maybe there was some um, initiative or something that we could have tried that would have met them where they are, but I think Putin's own objective in enhancing his own power uh, led him to basically tear up the envelope of the world. And to decide that nothing that that Western order, that Western-led order could deliver to him in terms of consequences with anything that he was going to care Absolutely. about. So that is Samantha Power speaking to Rachel Maddow. Professor Cohen, I wanted your response to that, this notion that it's Putin who has torn up the international order, because it's often used to justify a more hawkish posture towards Russia, as you to justify an increased uh, NATO uh, expansion and an increased NATO military presence near Russia's borders. Does it track actually with Putin's worldview as you understand it? Well, it may track with his worldview today, all these years later, but he doesn't track, <clears throat> excuse me, Aaron, with his worldview as it was during the period she's talking about. Note a couple things about what she says. Everything that went wrong in the American-Russian relationship was Putin's fault. And this was because he cared only about his own power, not about the well-being of the Russian people. So we pause here and we remind ourselves that when Putin came to power in the year 2000, perhaps as many as 75% of Russians were living below the poverty line. And that whatever Putin did wrong or bad, or not to our liking, no one in Russia, including oppositionists, would deny that Putin made budgetary decisions with what wealth Russia had. When oil prices went up, he got lucky. He invested in Russia. And as I like to say, if Putin stole, he left plenty for the Russian people, because all the indicators are. Uh, that Russians generally, materially, socially, and this is confirmed anecdotally, even oppositionists say this, Russians live today better than they ever have in their history. And though it can't all be attributed to Putin's leadership since 2000, he presided over this. He invested in Russia. He invested in the Russian people. And they've got these big projects they're planning. Some people think they're unrealistic to invest another approximately $400 billion in infrastructure uh, projects over the next 10 or so years. So the one thing that can be said about Putin, whatever we don't like about him, is that his priority was, was the Russian people. They were in the worst imaginable straits when he came to power. When he came to power, Aaron, men were dying on average <clears throat> at less than 60 years. Think about that. I think it was 57. I'm not sure. But it was less than 60 years. This was a demographic catastrophe. That was Putin's priority, was essentially saving the Russian people. The first time I heard people talk about Putin shortly after uh, the nature of his leadership had begun to unfold, this would have been about 2002 or three. I recall several people referring to Putin 
as Vladimir Spasito, Vladimir the Savior. Now, we recoil at that. We think of Putin as some kind of criminal, some kind of assassin. There's no evidence for that. But for Russians, even today, though anti-Putin opinion has grown, most Russians understand, understand that Russia, that Putin deserves this title, Vladimir Spasito, uh, Vladimir the Savior, for what he did, the way he invested Russia's wealth, stopped the stealing, at least on that scale, and invested in Russia. So powers, A, doesn't know what she's talking about, and two, doesn't care about the Russian people. And as for Putin recoiling against the West, please notice, let me give you a riddle. What does she not mention in this so-called, you know, discussion with Rachel Maddow? What's missing? What the single most important thing that's happened in international affairs, at least regarding Russia, during the last generation and a half? She never mentions the expression, NATO expansion. Hmm. Is it possible that Putin was reacting to the West putting its military power right on Russia's borders? She never mentions that. I mean, how is this possible? I mean, this is either... I mean, what's interesting about her is that we hear coming from her mouth the kind of dialogue that was going on about Russia during the Obama administration. Obama did not have, was not a successful foreign policy president, to say the least. But his foreign policy toward Russia and its results were catastrophic. And now we hear from a woman who played a role, who contribu contributed her two bits to decision making during the Obama administration, and we see why it was a catastrophe. The primitive thinking, the lack of knowledge, the lack of caring, the lack of understanding what was really in American interest. So for her to blame Putin is rich, to say the least. How does this debate in terms of Russia rejoining the West, how does that debate play out when it comes uh, to Russia itself? All right, so let's be candid. The debate, such as it takes place in the United States, is ignorant. These people who are denouncing Trump or denouncing the idea that Russia should be back in the G7 or G8 or G9, the so-called club of European uh, powers, uh, don't know what they're talking about. They are trespassing on perhaps the most existential issue in Russia today, which is debated in the Russian media. None of them read the media or watch it, of course. Uh, which is a problem. Uh, and that issue in Russia is, again, it's been an issue for centuries, but it's pressing today. Is Russia part of the West or is it apart from the West? Part of the West would mean being a member of the Western political diplomatic clubs, including the G7, G8, G9, whatever it, it ends up being. It's not an abstract question certainly not for Russians in the Russian policy class, and to a certain extent, the Russian public understands this question. Because Russia sits between East and West geographically. Russia is the largest territorial country in the world, even after the end of the Soviet Union. So when people say, well, where were, you know, the assumption in Washington that Russia needs the West, that Russia would be isolated. Sometimes Kristoff and the others of the Times refer to Russia being isolated. Russia might be, I haven't quantified it, but the most active diplomatic power in the world 
today. Uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov of Russia seems to be having big meetings with heads of state and other foreign secretaries almost daily. Well, not much is going on in our State Department except chaos. Russia is very active in the world, but this is an existential issue. Is Russia part of the West or not? If it's not part of the West, it goes east, and that means to and with China. That's what's at issue beneath this talk about the G7 or the G8. From my point of view, this is a kind of turning point in, 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 in not only American, but Western-Russian relations. Because the, the takeaway for, for Russia in this debate about whether they've been kicked out of the G7 or G8 or they're back in has to do with whether they can ever be part of the West or whether periodically, every generation or so, the West is going to decide to kick them out of the West or try to do so. Now, this is not just a philosophical or sentimental question, but it is that for a lot of young Russians. It's also a question of whether Russia makes its investments, where it makes its long-term commitments, financial. Long-term financial commitments take the form of pipelines and infrastructure, which can't suddenly be turned West once they're invested and, and built. So we're at a turning point. Russia's at a turning point. If we want Russia in the West, then all this talk about isolating Russia, and Russia having no place to go, don't let them come to our meetings at the G whatever, these are, 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 are pushing Russia in a direction that I personally would not like to see it go. Russia is going to have a, 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 a friendly relationship with China. But we are pushing Russia into a strategic alliance with Russia, with China, and that is something completely different. So these people who are clamoring against Trump over his suggestion that Russia be brought back into the G7 or 8 do not know what they're talking about. They're, they're intruding, they're trespassing ignorantly into one of the greatest issues of our time, wither Russia. All right. Stephen F. Cohen, Professor Emeritus of Russian Studies at Princeton and NYU author of many books, including his latest, War with Russia, From Putin and Ukraine to Trump and Russiagate. Thanks very much. Thank you, Aaron.